up together and begin with a prayer. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee, without the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thine unoriginate Father, and thine all holy and good and life-giving Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. The third hour, hour What's that? No, that is the prayer that the priest says before the gospel reading in the liturgy. So it's not included in any of the hours of the church, but it's included in the liturgy. So, and it's a good one to do before studying. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who love us mankind. That's a good one, you know. So, as we were coming to the end of the service today, I thought, I would ask you guys some questions that you don't have to answer, but that you should be thinking about. I created a list of questions, and I'd like your feedback, because people are coming from all kinds of different backgrounds, and as people are exploring the Orthodox faith, they, um, they're becoming a part of something that has been, you know, it's a living tradition. It's a way of life and an experience of life and worship and Christian community that's been going on for a couple of millennia now. So, you know, it's not just a, a, ser- a series of beliefs, you know, but a, way, but a way of life. And of course, you're not going to completely understand every little aspect of the Orthodox Christian belief in life and teaching in a short time of preparation even if that time of preparation is a year or so. That's a relatively short time, given someone's lifespan or within the scope of eternity. A year or so. And so it's important for people to take their time as they're exploring the Orthodox faith. We liken it to to preparing for marriage. there's, a, there's always some risk involved. Like, you'll never really unravel the mystery of the other person before you marry them. You know what I mean? Like, the fact that my wife put coffee creamer in her coffee, I never knew that until we got married, and it really surprised me. She always drank black coffee when she came over to hang out with me. At my apartment with my buddies, we went to college together, and we'd sit out and drink black coffee on the porch together, and I thought it was so cool. And then when we got married, we were doing our first shopping trip together. And she put coffee creamer. It, it obviously wasn't a deal breaker, but I was like, what? You don't put creamer in your coffee? And she goes, you just never had any at your place. And I was like, oh. I was surprised she didn't bring some over. Yeah, she didn't bring any over. It was funny. But, but anyway, so there are always things that you will, you will not know. But you know, that you will learn, like any relationship, and so, so is our relationship with the church. But it's important for people to take the time required, to, you know, to discern and to understand and trust what it is that they're getting into. 
So we take time because, again, it's not just a, a couple of beliefs that you think, or that you think orthodoxy is better than the other ones. Although you probably will, I mean, if, why would you become orthodox if you didn't think it was you know, more correct or something like that? But, but it's, it's not just about that. So I put together a series of questions, and I was wondering if these, if these kinds of questions are helpful or intimidating. So I'm, I'm, so I'm not trying to scare anyone away, but let me know if, as you're exploring orthodoxy and thinking about becoming, and some of you are very close to being received into the church, if these kinds of questions would be helpful for you, or if it would be kind of, kind of overwhelming or intimidating, you know, so you can hear, I'm not being uh, very hard on you right now. I'm just inquisitive. So I created a series of, I don't know, maybe 15 questions. I haven't numbered them. Items to address before enrolling someone as a catechumen. An official catechumen is someone who has moved from kind of dating the church, kind of exploring, having dinner together, seeing what it's like, to engagement. Like, I want to become Orthodox. So it's kind of like moving from dating to, an, to engagement. And then becoming Orthodox is like getting married, you know. It's a lifelong, the idea is that it's a lifelong decision. It's not just a, a denominational change. So there are things that, that are honest questions uh, that, that I think we might want to ask ourselves. So let me know what you think. I'll read them to you and see if there's a trigger, anything that triggers you. Sometimes we need to be triggered, but not, not just for the fun of it. But some questions like, do you truly believe that the Holy, or the Holy Orthodox Church is the one Holy Orthodox and Catholic and Apostolic Church? Do you even know what that means to call it that? You know, that's a significant question. And these are things that we cover over, over the year or so cycle of catechism classes. Do you believe that Mary is the Theotokos, so the birth giver of God and our intercessor? Have you come to terms with Mary? Because that's a big part of our life in the Orthodox Church, our relationship with Mary. Not in a weird way, in a natural way, but have you, have you worked through that? Because it's there. You're not going to escape it. You know what I mean? Are you making the sign of the cross at church and on your own throughout the week? So it's, it's something that we do as a result of what we believe. We've talked about it before, but we, we communicate verbally and non-verbally. Something that we're not as attuned to in the Western world, but we're always communicating with our disposition, with our manner, even the manner of speaking. There's a big difference between a guy who's just talking like this all the time. He's not very convincing that he cares. This is the most important thing you would ever hear in your life. You know what I mean? Rather than, this is really important for you. You know, even the way we speak, let alone our mannerisms. And so orthodoxy has always had what I like to call sign language. You know what I mean? Like, we, it's not just merely outward, merely outward forms of worship to somehow prove something to ourselves. But... When you, when you hold your hands like this, it's a statement of faith. You know, your faith in the Trinity, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Christ is fully God and fully man, come down to earth, and that his love is re- has been revealed to us on the cross. And by that cross, our way of life is revealed and the path to resurrection. You know what I mean? Like, it's all there in just that one little, seemingly little, action. A, sum, a, summary, a summary of what we believe. And it becomes a, a type of prayer, too. There are times when words don't sur- suffice. And so, you know, you get on your knees. Sometimes that tears take the place of words. And also this, the sign of the cross is very helpful. And so there's a paradigm shift that takes place in one's life. Are you comfortable? Do you understand why we make the sign of the cross? And then are you, are you doing it as a part of your daily practice, your, your life? Are you actively venerating icons when you enter the church and at home? Like, what are icons all about and why do we venerate them? And then am I participating in that? Because that is an essential act for an Orthodox Christian. It's not just a pious, you know, uh, preference. Do you have a prayer corner at home? And are you praying Orthodox prayers daily? So are you taking some prayers out of one of the prayer books and spending time to, I like to call, connect the dots between what we do here. What we do here is very, quite specific, you know. It's like you get here and you jump, you jump on board. The train is in motion. But what do we do at home? You know, lay face down with our head in our pillow and say, well, you, you love me no matter what, even if I sleep in for 30 minutes, which is true. But don't take advantage of God's grace. Like, do we, are we connecting the dots between what we experience here and how we worship at home? Like when we say some of the prayers, like the typical prayers that we do at the beginning of most services, O Heavenly King, Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, that are memorized prayers, when, when I say those prayers at home, it's not just Father Jeremiah doing his own little thing. I'm uniting myself with everyone who says those prayers in every language, in every place, right now and throughout all of time. And it's really beautiful. So I'm praying not only as an individual, but as a member of the church using the, the prayers of the church. So when we say specific prayers at home, we're saying... I don't just pray as a, as a guy who's trying to you know, prove something to himself by acting holy or... jumping through hoops. But am I taking that seriously? Can, there's a continuity of worship and prayer that takes place. Are we implementing those things in our home? Are you asking for and receiving the priest's blessing? Ooh, that's another big... Big one culturally and you know theologically to, to even have, for a lot of Westerners even to have a priesthood, you know people. I remember one young man wrote me a message some years ago saying, <laughs> "Well, he showed up. It's an interesting story. You've probably heard it because you've listened to my some of my recordings." Um, he showed up visiting, and I said, "So, like greetings. It's nice to." meet you are you exploring orthodox christianity and he said no i want to i i want to become orthodox i went well great you know let's talk let's get to know each other and uh, he started coming to church throughout the course of the coming week 
And it was the feast of the exaltation of the cross. Where we bring out the cross. We do a procession with the cross. And we sing, Before thy cross we bow down and worship, O Master, and thy holy resurrection we glorify. And the guy, it was like a culture shock for him. He had never experienced anything like that. And so he wrote to me, Yeah, I don't think God really likes the way that you guys approach the cross. And by the way, the priesthood was abolished when Christ came. And I went, hmm. Interesting. So number one, I just said, look up the word, do, do a search in your concordance. I'm always telling people, especially who have a biblical orientation, use your concordance or go to the people. I don't know if people use concordances these days. Like I have a little hardback one on my desk, but you can go to websites too. Um, look up the word cross, how it's used throughout the scripture and just see how important the cross is. Because he, he come, comes from a you know, Christian background. And then you're just wrong about the priesthood. Like the priesthood was never abolished. Not really until probably post 16th century, you know, the Anabaptist movement. I mean, like there was, there's always been a priesthood, even in the Reformation churches. So the priesthood never went away. Um, so our experience of Christianity, a very kind of casual, more contemporary version, is, very, is fairly new. Fairly new. So I said, that's, you know. But uh, so our relationship with the, even just trusting the church enough to understand that there is a priesthood and that it's important, you know, the function and role that it's essential. I remember some, some family members of mine came to the Orthodox Church to visit. And uh, they really love me and they trust me. I come from a Protestant background. So, uh, but low, we, what we call low church. No sacraments, no like recited prayers, anything, everything would be uh, extemporaneous prayers, things like that. Um, we followed, we had our own liturgy, whether we admitted it or not. We'd have a few songs, had a little break for announcements, another song, then a sermon, and then toward the end of the sermon, the guitar guy starts doing a couple little things, you know, in the background um, to raise the mood, and, and then one outro song. So we kind of had our own type of liturgy, but nothing like what you've experienced here, you know. And so they came and um, they were, their question was, is all of that like necessary? Is all of this necessary, you know, what you do? For what? For what? For salvation? I mean, to be a Christian? Those are interesting questions. Is the priesthood necessary? It's a good question. We would say... Yes, but we don't question whether or not, because it, it, it was instituted by God in the Old Testament and, and continued into the time of the New Testament and the early church and to the present day. And the function of the priest is something quite specific too. And so even just accepting the priesthood, let alone asking and receiving the priest's blessing. On moral issues, this is really important in our day and age. Do you understand the church's teaching on abortion and things like that, you know, that you can't take the life of an unborn, that life begins at conception. We believe that, like Pat, patently. The, this was written in one of the earliest church's writings, the Didache, which is like right in the, you know, apostolic age. Um, now, it doesn't mean that we are 
harsh and judgmental and picketing places where abortions take place, but it means we, we believe that it is a sin and that it's a tragedy that it's taking place, for example. Do you understand the church's teaching on human sexuality and identity? What we believe marriage is? We believe that there are, are two genders, that marriage is between man and a woman, like those some of basic things. And in our day and age, a lot of times, the, um, I will encounter someone who doesn't hold the same presuppositions as me, for example, because there's a normalization of what St. Paul might call another gospel, another gospel. And that's what they believe is right and true and even meaningful, you know? And so there's a big, that's another part of the paradigm shift that people have to go through. What are my presuppositions about human sexuality and relationships? Is it compatible with the Orthodox Church's teaching? I'm not even halfway through my list. But I think this, I felt like this would be a really intriguing thing to go over with you. And if you have any additional questions that you think I should include here, or responses, I'm not going to do a, a general response time today, but this is more of a prompt for the conversations that I have with you guys. Do you understand, um, or for single people, for single people, this is a big one, are you willing to consider monasticism as a possible vocation for your life? Once you become Orthodox, are you interested in marriage? Are you willing to commit to an Orthodox marriage with someone who shares the Orthodox faith? That's a big one these days because people, especially with people finding each other online and then working it out later, you know, we see that, I see that all the time and I have to help people work through, you know, some, some complicated scenarios sometimes because like as a, as a priest and a spiritual father, I, I will not do a marriage for people who don't share the same faith. And some Orthodox priests will, will marry an Orthodox person and someone who is a, a Trinitarian Christian. But they're not worshiping together. They're not in communion with one another. And so I, I think you've got to have the, the proper foundation. So that has to be dealt with. Yeah. I would never do it. Because they're not in communion with one another. What church are you going to go together on Sunday? Go, go to together on Sunday. You're going to split your time. And when you have children, where are they going to go? Why, why aren't mommy and daddy worshiping the same way? Like, why, does, why do we go to one and the other, you know, and we can't take communion there, and we go to another one and we can? Like, it divides the whole family. So the family really does need to be unified. I deeply believe that. What's the view of, uh, let's say, an, uh, an Orthodox Christian man marries, mm -hmm. uh, let's say I go to Mexico, mm -hmm. in a Catholic church? Then you would be leaving the Orthodox Church. You would be apostatizing, yeah, at that point. Because you would be receiving a sacrament outside of the church, you know what I mean? You'd be receiving a sacrament from an, another, you would be right. another tradition. So then you just would fall out of communion. You'd be, they would take you. They'd be happy to take you. Oh yeah, we're all, it's cool. It's all good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so there's some deeper, deeper convictions that that are above like some cultural norms that you might experience too, and you might even hear about them, you know, in other countries and things like that. 
The Orthodox? Yeah, well, I mean, it's just going to be, it's, it's a different service altogether. But, um, but anyway, we can talk more, you know, go deeper on that if, if you're interested. But it's really, imp- it's an important question. Like, would you consider monasticism if you're not married? What if God called you to the monastic life, to wedding yourself with him and not, a, not another human being, you know, in a community? Um, if you're already married, sorry, you don't get to choose that one. You don't get to pick monasticism after the fact. Now that you're discovering orthodoxy, you have the wonderful joy and cross of crown of um, marriage. But, uh, but anyway, but then we really should. Now, it doesn't mean you, can be, you, you can't be friends with people who are outside of the faith and things like that. And sometimes I've, I have found that like an orthodox man or woman will, through friendships and relationships, like introduce a friend to orthodoxy and then that person becomes joins the church and then they end up getting married sometimes but that's not the reason to become orthodox you don't do it so that you can get married like in that greek wedding movie where the guy gets baptized in a little pool so that he can marry and they're already sleeping together before their wedding and things like that it's like no that just trivializes the faith and for for that lady in that I haven't seen it, but that I've heard about in that movie. Like, it was more of a cultural, ethnic, you know, uh, protocol. So, those are, these are important questions. Deep ones, too. Like, and I'm not trying to scare people away, but rather than feeling Father Jeremiah's being a hard nose, ask yourself, like, hmm, would I, would I consider that? Why or why not? Let me pray about it. Let me think about it. So that's another thing that you have to understand about the Orthodox faith is, is that it, it's a more of a marathon, you know, not a sprint. So you're, you have to prayerfully approach everything, especially things that create crisis within your life. Because a lot of times, like, a crisis is a result of uh, my, my self-perception being challenged, and my self-perception may, may or may be incorrect, too, at times. So we need to be challenged in those ways. So next, next question. Are you willing to remain in this community at least for the duration of your time of preparation for becoming Orthodox, leading up to your reception into the church, barring, barring unforeseen or extenuating circumstances? So we stay here, like through, you're not going to church hop and find Father Jeremiah says something that you don't like and so you switch churches, you know. Um, unless I'm being really terrible or something, I, God forbid. Now, if you but, move or whatever case, that's a different story. Yeah, but you should try not. Why? Why? Why move as a catechumen unless you have to? If you're committed to becoming Orthodox, you should see your catechesis through while you're there. Stay, stay, unless for some reason you have to move. Like I, like like Judd and Tara. You remember them? Yeah. You know their their daughter was mid, uh, young. I mean, in her forties dying of cancer. They were catechumens here, and they needed to go move to be close to her. And uh, so that made a lot of sense. And, but it's still hard for them now because they're disconnected from our community and trying to figure out how, how to continue as catechumens somewhere else. So, but, um, and then are you involved in any service ministries in our parish? 
So we, in our church in particular, St. Paul, we, offer, uh, we offer, operate like, uh, more like an extended family. And so, you know, we don't hire people to do everything that needs to be done. We have kind of a, a see a need, fill a need approach. If someone says, hey, when are you guys going to clean up the leaves in the parking lot, you know, or something, I say, are you willing to help with that? And not in a, you know, cranky or snide way, you know, or sarcastic or anything, but, you know, we, need, we do need help with that. Would you be willing? Do you have time to do it? And sometimes they go, I'll pay someone to do it, you know. Um, but uh, we try to, you know, we do a lot of hands-on, like our service ministry list is really long. For as, as relatively small as our community is, it takes a lot to keep things going. And it's very active. And so we all get involved in various service ministries. And beyond um, just doing this, the meals, the homeless outreach meals, the lunches that we do on the third Sunday, but other ways of being involved, helping with, uh, with the, the lawns or the groundskeeping. Erica would always be happy for people who want to help with weeding and things like that. When I started at St. Paul, I've been here for about 17 years. Um, before I was a priest, I converted to Orthodoxy here. So I was on the loo crew, we called it, cleaning the bathrooms, and on the lawn mowing crew, and then uh, whatever, you know, whatever else I could help with, you know. I was young and energetic back then. But, uh, but are you involved in any service ministries? Are you on coffee hour, like willing to help out with coffee hour too? Because that's a way that we contribute. It's a huge part of our fellowship. And it's a blessing to be able to go downstairs and spend time together and share a meal. And it's actually one of our main ways of evangelizing too. Father James used to say, our choir and our coffee hour are our primary forms of evangelism. Our choir, because the music is very beautiful. And then the coffee hour, because the people are wonderful. And you'll find, like visitors find, you know, um, those that they can relate to downstairs. Oh, I've been through that before. I had some of those concerns. I know where you're coming from, you know. So it's, it's special, rather than just having a, a donut and coffee and running, you know, getting brunch somewhere else. Having a real sense of community here is important, is another one. I'm almost done. Are you participating in financial stewardship? <laughs> Can you say money? Talk about money. Are you participating in financial stewardship of the parish? And are you f familiar with, like, how to do it and our, even our giving options? There are... There are practical considerations, like when you're a part of a community, the only reason we can stay here is because people do give from, from the abundance they receive from God or from the little they receive, you know, from the work that they do. But everyone gives something, and then that allows us to continue to keep the lights on and to have a full-time priest, you know, who has a family and things like that. It's a real blessing. And maybe someday to expand or to start a mission out on Whidbey Island, which is something we're working on, things like that. But what we do with our money is actually a huge reflection of what we really care about. And I'm not giving you a lecture about giving to the church right now. I'm giving you a lecture from a just a person to a person. That oftentimes when I'm talking with people, if I want to incite a little uh, 
I was going to say violence, a little holy violence or something, but, a, you know, a little uh, thoughtfulness in their uh, life. I'll say, look, look back at your bank statement at the end of the month and say, how does this reflect what I really, what I care about, what I value? Because we do spend our money on the things that we, val we value, you know? Crap, I like food a lot, you know, or something like that, or clothes or whatever, or... Hmm, well, I do, you know, I do care about giving to the, to the poor. To the, but the church should be a part of that, too. You know, giving something. You may have noticed, many of you have been here for a while, we don't talk about money. We don't ask people for money. We don't pass a plate during the services. That's because giving, I think, because of the ethos we have here. The atmosphere is one where people start to understand, like, this is kind of holistic and I understand giving something to the church to help support it is, is a part of my spiritual life. It's part of who I am. So financial stewardship, there you go. Do you understand that um, we do not participate in cremation and embalming of those who have reposed, but honor the body and give it a proper Christian burial, and that this is important to convey to non-Orthodox family members we don't destroy the body once the person is reposed which is a living temple of God it's not like we're tempted like Kierkegaard to say that we cast it off like grave clothes but what did they do when Christ died they honored his body they went back to his tomb to anoint it with spices you know what I mean like to honor the very body in which that was Christ. It's not the body that somehow Christ inhabited. But the person is, it isn't a, a body that has a soul. A soul that takes a body for a walk or something like that. But it is a body and soul. And Christ, when he became man, he united the two aspects again. So we don't willfully destroy the body, which is the living image of God. Icon of God. So... Um, we give a proper burial. We even venerate the body of the departed, our departed loved ones, which is interesting. Something a very different paradigm than a lot of Westerners who say, "Oh, they've died. They're in a better place." Okay, let's blend them up and forgive me, but they do blend them up and throw them in the ocean or something like that, and it's all you know, and have a pizza party. Uh, the Orthodox approach to death and burial is is different. It's resurrectional, but it's also mournful. And it's very deeply respectful. So if you have a chance to go to an Orthodox funeral, you, you should, even if you don't know the person. We've had, a I don't know how many, like six funerals this year, which is a lot for our community. Usually we'll go every, you know, a couple few years without a funeral here. Um, but uh, if you have the opportunity, uh, you should. And there's some good materials about it, too. There's a book called The Christian Ending that we have that talks about our, some of our views about death and life after death, and then also the Christian approach to burial. And then last, are you willing to make the life in Christ and therefore also the church the top priority in your life? You know, that's going to be something that um, no matter where you live, you know, what job you have, 
that your, your Christian life and faith is going to be central to, to who you are. You know, um, so are you willing to make that a priority? You should if, if you are planning on wedding yourself to, to the church in that way. So those are some questions. I think I have a few more that I could jot down even just after going through. So it's not to intimidate people, but it's to, to encourage you to take your time then. Think through things. It might take you a couple months to go through one or two of these questions, you know what I mean, and really deal with it. It take, might take a while, and that's okay. Because in the scheme of eternity, our little struggles to, to honestly try to discern God's will in our life, it's time well spent. You know, don't, as I always tell people, don't rush it, but don't prevent it from happening either. That's where discernment takes place. When we're not trying to, you know, hold, hold back and opposing God's will, but we're also not trying to force it or speed it up. So, okay. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. So if you have thoughts and things as we're meeting, getting together, let me know what you think. Yeah, I can send it out to you. I can send it to our catechism list. Are you on that email reminder? Okay, I should try to put you on there. It's like a little subgroup from our major, a big mailing list. And I have to assign people to a little, I tag you for our catechism class. And I usually give a reminder for class on Saturday afternoon sometime. So I can send that out. Yeah. Those are the kinds of things like we should all be thinking about. And there's probably more, too. A lot of popular topics are covered over the course of the year in catechism, but also we have that, those, all those little booklets, too, that a bunch of converts to orthodoxy have written in, a, in the United States because they've realized that a lot of people are asking the same questions coming from a similar religious and cultural background. So, the book on baptism covers a couple of those questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Speaking of baptism, that's our topic for today. We're going to talk about holy baptism. We only our our book supply has been dwindling. Now we're down to five. Uh, I don't know if there's enough to share. Do you guys want to try? Did you bring your book with you? You you're good. What are you going to do once you're finally baptized? Like. Are you still going to carry your book around yeah. with you? Yeah. There's still got information. I still underline stuff in here. Yeah. Highlighted stuff. So. Do you guys want to pass them around and see? I, you know, I generally I I, I read through the I read through the text called the faith, and then also make comments as we go. So. Some. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> No, I just you're so you you're so faithful as a catechumen carrying that book with you. Well, I, I read it. I've already read it a couple read times. Yeah. yeah. What chapter is called? Chapter twelve. Is it the beginning of it? Yeah. yeah. Chapter twelve, holy baptism. And I guess I could. I've I've talked about this in the past. I could just print out copies of the chapters for you guys too. I'm still waiting to get to order copies for the bookstore. You know, this book is a pretty good one. It fell out of publication for a while, and now it's recently republished. So 
Let's talk about holy baptism today. In holy baptism, that's another word that you could look up. Bap- baptism, baptize, baptized, you know, in your New Testament and see how important it is for, for Christianity. But in holy baptism, our fallen nature is put to death. And we're raised from the water, purified from sin, to live a new life, united with Christ our God. So the last commandment that Christ gave to his disciples before his ascension into heaven. You guys doing okay? Carlton. Oh, this is what it's going to look like. Yeah, look. This is the new copy. The new version. You can get it on uh, Amazon. Amazon. But I don't believe that there's an audio version. Kindle? I have a Kindle one that I got years ago. I think it's on the Kindle one. Yeah. So, the last commandment that Christ gave to his disciples before his ascension into heaven was, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you and lo I am with you always even unto the end of the world Matthew 28 19 through 20 what is that generally referred to as in Christian great teaching commission. the great commission we call that a lot of people commonly refer to that as the great commission so our Lord made baptism a central element of the Christian faith we hear in Mark 16 he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved And this underscores the fact that Christianity is not merely a philosophy or a set of beliefs, but a life to be lived. So baptism is our entrance into this life. It's always been understood as the the point of entry into the Christian life. Before we discuss baptism in detail, however, a few words about the sacraments in general are in order. So first of all, we should note that the Greek word for sacrament is... Mysterion. You guys know we like that word. Mystery. Mystery. Mysterion. I'm going to write it on the board. Even though you have it in the book. Do we have anyone who does, um, who does uh, Greek studies or anything like that? Mysterion. What is it? Mysterion. Oh, it doesn't have a Mysterion. Um, that doesn't look right. I think it's this. There we go. Um, but what, what English word does that seem like? Mysterion. Mystery. 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 Exactly. I mean, I'm not, this isn't uh, college level right now. But sometimes we just make a really immediate and direct connection with something. And so we use the word mystery. And in the Orthodox Church, the sacraments are usually referred to as the mysteries. We refer to them as oftentimes in general the holy mysteries, but a lot of times we will say the mystery of holy baptism, the mystery of chrismation, the mystery of holy communion. A lot of times when people are talking about the holy mysteries, just as a point of like uh, clarification, when you use the definite article, the holy mysteries they're talking about the body the body blood of Christ the body 
and blood of Christ. Unless the conversation, so if you're reading some Orthodox literature and it's talking about the holy mysteries are unto our regeneration or something like that, you know. Um, usually it's talking about holy communion so, or the Eucharist. So just, just so you know, unless in the, in the context of that reading or lesson that you're listening to or whatever it may be, uh, it, it seems like they're talking about the, the sacraments in general. But a lot of times people will, will also clarify because sacrament is a, is a Western term that's commonly used and known in a, the United States. So we'll kind of use them interchangeably. But uh, usually referred to as mysteries. So it's often said that a sacrament is an outward sign of an invisible grace. But what exactly do we mean by grace? And how is this communicated to us through the mysteries? The church teaches that grace is more than God's good favor toward man. So receiving God's grace, it's not a matter of falling like in and out of preference with God. Which is a lot of times how we see our relationship with our parents and therefore with God. And so when we think of grace, we think, Dad's not mad at me right now, for example. We treat like favor. Yeah, favor, you know, yeah. Being, falling in and out of favor. But that's not really how it works with the unconditionally loving God. And that's not how we understand grace. So we, we refer to grace as the uncreated energy of God. St. Gregory Palamas went into this at length. When God bestows his grace upon man... He's bestowing the gift of himself. God's inner nature is inner nature. His essence, you could say, is incommunicable. Created man can never come to know the inner nature of the uncreated God. You can't, you can't put God in a box, we used to say. You can't wrap your head. If you can wrap your head around God, then it's not God that you're talking about. But nevertheless, God truly communicates his life to man. Do any of you remember my, one of my favorite little quotes by St. Gregory Palamas about knowing God? Anyone know? Anyone know it? I know it. <laughs> Can we hear it? Okay. It's a good one. God is not only beyond knowing or comprehension, you say. But he's also, you know, beyond. <gasps> Welcome to Orthodox mystical theology. Unknowing. Wow. St. Gregory Palamas. Yeah, are you awake now? I just was falling asleep, Father. Um, Another way to like learn is that God is transcendent, He's also infinite. imminent. So He's beyond everything, so, but He's also with us. Yeah. If you want to sound like a seminary student, <laughs> imminent, Im, immanent, and transcendent. Not imminent, but immanent. You know the difference between those two terms? No. Imminent means like present. 
imminent with an I means impending, like about like will it inevitable. But uh, God is present and yeah, two, what's that? Two different words. Two different words that sound the same. But uh, anyway, so God truly, we believe though that God truly communicates his life to man. I mean, we say there's no, there's no life apart from God. And so we do, the Orthodox don't, are not uh, deists who believe that God put everything into motion but is somehow absent from his creation, for example. So when man encounters the grace of God, he encounters God himself in some way. Because man is a physical being, God creates his grace to man through physical means. Created matter becomes the vehicle through which God's presence reaches our lives. The mysteries, therefore, are our way of participating in the life of the Holy Trinity, which Christ came to give to mankind. Now, this is why uh, the, that book, For the Life of the World, is kind of by Father Alexander Schmemann is helpful, even though it's a little hard to read, a little technical. But basically, he says, like, all of creation was given to man as a means of communion with God. But not to be confused, not, not that the world, we're not pantheists. We don't believe that the world is God. But we do believe that, this is another, this is a Father Jeremiah-ism. But that there is nothing that is apart from having been created by God. Okay? So nothing that exists or that has life or being. It's not an original thought, but it's just the way I like to word it. But everything that is, is on account of God bringing it into existence. So you can't come into contact with anything that's not God's creation. And that somehow then, you might say, doesn't have God's print on it. You know, God's, if God had a thumb, thumbprint, you know, we say, you know, growing up. So you can encounter God in some way through his creation. But that doesn't mean creation is God. We're not pantheists, but I heard one person say, and intriguingly, panentheists. Have you heard of that? Pan what? Brian? I've heard of that. Panentheists. Okay. That, that, there, that, that God, God, is, God is in his creation because he, it wouldn't be there. He created it out of nothing. But, it, but we wouldn't say that creation is God. It's God in his creation. God in his creation. So to encounter anything that's made by God is to encounter God in some way. But God's not limited by what he's created. Especially in his essence or his divinity. But God, through the uncreated God, brought us into existence so that we could know him. We could be in a, a loving relationship with the Holy Trinity. Um, and so that means that the finite has to have a, a, a point of interaction with the infinite you know um, he gave it to us in creation and then we screwed it up and blew it and pretended like it didn't like, like it existed without him that it was you know self sourced and that we that it's ours you know what I mean and, and so that's where our relationship with the world is screwed up and so our our sacramental view of life is not to hate the world and creation but to, to, to restore it to reclaim it is God's. Like the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein, the world and all that dwell. The fullness, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all that dwell therein. You cannot interact with anything 
that is not a byproduct of God's creativity. No. No, what is it? What what about sin and corruption? No, those are a result of the fall. Um, and, and yeah, but still created by God. I mean, that's not sin isn't created by God, but the world, you know, even the world in which we can we can sin, you know, it is a world created by God. So that's an interesting thing to think about. And so, okay, you have a thought, or are you just stretching? Okay. So baptism is one of these one of the the mysteries, one of the specific means by which God, the uncreated God intersects with his created ones, his creatures. And so it's the first of the mysteries. It's our introduction into the divine life, you could say. In holy baptism, past sins are remitted, our fallen nature is put to death, and we're raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6.4, in the likeness of the Son of God. So, the image of God is something that's indelible or inalienable. We're created in God's image. That's inescapable. But to be conformed to the likeness of God, that is for those who decide to unite themselves with the will of God. And so, baptism is the first step in our journey toward being conformed to the likeness of God, which is the restoration of our humanity. And it's not the destruction of our humanity, but the restoration of it. For this reason, the baptismal pool is known as the tomb and the womb. It's the place where you go to death. And if the world had its way, you know what I mean? If the fallen creation had its way, you would, if you go underwater, you won't survive very long. It's an interesting thing. If you stay down there, but we have the ability to come forth from it as those who are being reborn. And so, uh, interestingly, and a lot of people don't catch this or realize this, in the prayer for the catechumens that we do, some people don't catch this during the service, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it for you really quick. When the catechumens come up during the liturgy, we say this prayer, O Lord our God, who dwellest on high and regardest the humble, who has sent forth as the salvation of the race of men, thine only begotten Son and God, our Lord Jesus Christ, look down upon thy servants, the catechumens, who have bowed their necks before thee. Make them worthy in due season of the labor of regeneration, the forgiveness of sins and the robe of incorruption. What is that labor of regeneration? You guys know what that means? Did you say labor? Labor. Not labor. Not labor. See, some people mishear it because the word laver is not uh, as common of a word. But what do you call it? What's a, what's, a, um, what's a kind of an antiquated word for a bathroom? Lavatory. Washroom. Laver. A laver is like a wash basin or a place in which, um, I mean, there was a laver in the Old Testament. You guys ever heard the rod labor? Um, but uh, anyway, so it's a place where you are washed. In some of the prayers, actually, some of the older, you know, style prayers, we say, uh, wash me, lave me, 
we hear in some of them. Lave me, wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Lave so me. The laver is the saver. So, so the lave. I've always heard it's like laver, like you're lavering like a pan or something. Yeah. So, but that's, that's what that term is. So the baptismal pool, the baptismal font, we also use the word font for it. So laver, font, a trough. No. Ours, is a, ours happens to be a trough. Um, pool, sometimes, you know, baptismal pool. All the same thing. So, anyway, continuing on. Baptism begins with the exorcism of the candidate. How many of you have been to an Orthodox baptism service? Yes? Okay, most of you. Some of you, <laughs> you had it happen to you. Um, so, it begins with exorcism of the candidate and the renunciation of Satan. And so while speaking with his disciples, our Lord made a very disturbing comment in Matthew 12. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. So there are only two choices in life, God or Satan, or that, as, as that early writing of the church, the Didache says, the way of life or the way of death. So to accept one is to reject the other. Now that doesn't mean... Everyone always understands what path they're on. So we're seeking understanding. But that becomes a criteria for a criterion for our life. Is what I'm doing, like the decisions I'm making, are they unto life? Life in Christ, eternal life. Or is it something, is it unto death? Like, am I dabbling with death here? Is it self-destructive, harmful, sinful? Or is it life-giving? The scripture, scriptures describe Satan as the God with a lowercase g, the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, and as a roaring lion which walketh about seeking whom he may devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. And from the fall of Adam to the coming of Christ, all mankind lay under the sway of Satan. The first step in becoming a Christian is to be freed of the devil's power and to renounce his claim upon our lives. And so we say in the church, Dost thou renounce Satan and all his angels and all his work and all his service and all his pride? Or in our translation, it says pomp. Dost thou renounce? Do you renounce Satan? Or do you want to have a little friendship with him still? You know what I mean? Like, it's a choice. I mean, it really is. It's an honest choice. And if you, if you can't say that, then it's not time to unite yourself with Christ yet. It's just, it's not a game that we're playing are you in and you're out? Or are you out, buddy? Or something like that. Like I'm a gangster. No, it's like, you have a choice. You can make it. It's, but it is up to you. That's where, as like a couple of us were talking, that's where some of the free will comes into play in our Christian life. So do you renounce Satan? And then after the renunciation of Satan, there are, there are prayers that the priest says that are prayers of exorcism. And I like to say that uh, during that time, it's when the church exercises the authority that it uniquely has against Satan and his demons. It was interesting. A guy asked me recently, he was talking about demonic possession and things, and he goes, you know, I think I know someone who needs to be, and needs to have an exorcism. And I went, you know, I, I've done exorcisms before. It's kind of an interesting thing to say, you know. And he went, oh, oh interesting. 
But it's not like in the movies, you know what I mean? Like where people, now there are places where people are convulsing and there are, you know, dramatic things happening. But a lot of us are too materialistic to even see the unseen warfare that's happening in our lives. We're so, um, so, yeah, superficial, you know. We don't see the angels and the demons and the unseen warfare that really is taking place. <laughs> Do we want to? I don't know, you know, be careful what you ask for. But the reality is there. And so we tell Satan he has no right to lay claim on the life of this person anymore. Basically, in so many words, get out of here. By, by the authority of the one who is the creator of heaven and earth, who walked upon the seas, you know, who cast the demons into the swine. You know, you, have, you do not have authority here anymore in the lives of these people. And that's a beautiful, it's actually a beautiful thing, not a weird, you know, kind of superstitious, sensational, not sensational at all. Yes? I was curious. Well, every, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, yes, yeah. We don't have, we don't compartmentalize things like in the Roman Catholic Church. So every priest performs exorcisms. Every priest who does baptisms performs exorcisms. Uh, but there are unique scenarios in which, where there's demonic possession, where certain people who have a specific spiritual life a maturity might be called upon like in in the role of an exorcist it's like a, a doctor is a particular specialty you know at some monasteries and there's actually a priest somewhere out like in siberia like a russian orthodox priest who um is known as being a kind of an active exorcist out there there's just a lot of a lot of people struggle dealing with uh demonic influence and things like that and they come to his church and he anoints them with oil and makes the sign of the cross and they're they're like convulsing and screaming and saying get away get away from me and things like that and but it requires unique discernment for someone to do that because look we live in a day and age where there's a lot of mental illness there's also just a lot of psychological trauma and we don't want to confuse that with demonic possession so you have to be very very careful you know not to lead someone it can it can lead them into pride or delusion if they think, oh, I've had exorcism, like I should be better, but maybe there's something other than dem demonic influence taking place as well. So we have to, if someone suspects that they're possessed, then it has to be addressed uniquely. You know, you don't just go, oh, but take him to the nearest Orthodox priest. You know, he's an exorcist, something like that. But, but every priest does perform exorcism and has apostolicity, we would say, through the laying on of hands. Okay. Now we have a certain ranks of saints that are called equal to the apostles. And they're called equal to the apostles because of their evangelistic work that they did. You know, a lot of, a lot of like St. Nina of Georgia, who went, you know, shared the gospel. St. Olga. Olga of Kiev and others. So those who had like an apostolic character to their ministry. But... Uh, so after the renunciation of Satan, then the candidate recites the symbol of faith. That's another interesting word. We use the word symbol of faith, the Nicene Creed. And we call it the symbol of faith because uh, it, uh, it's an expression of what we believe, but 
it doesn't encompass everything. You know, it's not, it, it doesn't encapsulate the mystery of God. So we don't think that somehow, I have the creed memorized, like I'm, that's it, that's all I need to know. The creed was written specifically for use at baptism. And then only later was it inserted in divine liturgy. So these are the things that we, these are the core beliefs. So if anyone asks you, like if, if you're an Orthodox Christian or a catechumen or even an inquirer who's, like we were talking, is associating himself with the Orthodox faith. If someone asks, what, what do you believe? You could say, this is what I believe. The Orthodox statement of faith, the Nicene Creed. So um, it was later inserted into the liturgy. And this is why when we sing or recite the Creed the liturgy, we say, I believe in one God rather than we believe. Because it's a statement of faith that each person is making, that is making uniquely together. Each time we do so, we're renewing our personal confession of faith, originally made at our baptism. And if you haven't been baptized into the church yet, then you're kind of practicing for it. You know, you're memorizing the creed through exposure. And you hear it every time you're in the liturgy. You hear that. Baptism is performed by triple immersion in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And baptism cannot take place without the invocation of the All-Holy Trinity. So we don't say, I baptize you, you know, in the name of Jesus or something like that. But baptize, like Christ, we're following Christ's injunction. Baptizing them, but he said, go forth, preaching the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that's the only acceptable form of baptism in the name of the Trinity. St. Nicholas Cavasilus wrote, even though it is by one single act of loving kindness that the Trinity has saved our race, yet each of the blessed persons is said to have contributed something of his own. It's the Father who is reconciled, the Son who reconciles, and the Holy Spirit is bestowed as a gift on those who have become friends. And this book, The Life in Christ, is a really good book by St. Nicholas Cavasilis. If you want to check out a book on the Church's sacraments, it's an old one, but it's a very good classic. The candidate is immersed three times in commemoration of Christ's three-day burial. And this underscores the fact that our baptism is our participation in the death of Christ. In the waters of baptism, our fallen nature is put to death together with Christ, that we might also rise with Him. We hear in Colossians 2.12, Buried with Him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with Him through the faith and the operation of God, who hath raised Him from the dead, who were raised with Christ. And if you want to hear what we believe about the death and resurrection, I mean, come to Pascha when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, and it's in all of the hymns. Yesterday I was buried with Him. Today I rise with Him, you know. We must remember that the operative element here is the power and death of Christ and not our own effort. St. Kirill of Jerusalem stressed this point. He said, O strange and inconceivable thing, we did not really die. We were not really buried. We were not really crucified and raised again, but our imitation was but in a figure while our salvation is in reality. Christ was actually crucified and actually buried and truly rose again. And all these things have been vouchsafed, granted to us. 
that we, by imitation, communicating in his sufferings, might gain salvation in reality. Is it a hard one? No. no. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always wondered and found it difficult to explain the meaning of the word mystery. Yeah. And I, wonder, I call it God doing something. Yeah. That's the way I always explain it. I mean, do you think that it, that word was chosen? I mean, there's all those ancient weird who knows what was going on yeah. Greek mysteries at the time. Yeah. Or there's, is it just that there's the visible sign in the somewhat veiled reality that's actually being yeah. brought about by God's activity? Did, did that veiling, is that the mystery? Yeah, I mean it. It does. It does answer the the question of how to engage with the unseen, and you know, um, to deal with what what a lot of Gnostics were looking for in those times in the mystery cults, who were looking supposedly look, looking for some you know religious experience, but in oftentimes, ironically, very physical ways mm-hmm. through radical self-deprivation or through uh, self-gratification. The body doesn't matter. Then let's start a sex cult. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, wait, that doesn't make sense. So the mystery really is, is linked to the incarnation. The fact that the uncreated God could become man. That he could like, somehow become what he was not without ceasing to be what he always has been in order to... to unite himself with his creation. That's the mystery. And then every time we have a sacred interaction in, in church, like a Holy Communion, baptism, any of the sacraments or the Holy Mysteries, it's always a, a, a result of the incarnation. Um, it's, it's always seen as an extension you know, every sacrament, for example, requires some direct contact or some touch. Yes. You know, there's a direct contact. And the mystery is that the, the God who is outside of time, without beginning, mm-hmm. you know, beyond comprehension, ineffable, uh, uncircumscribable, out of love, somehow can take on what seem to be the limitations of human nature, subject himself to time and place to, to come into contact with you or me. Mm-hmm. Like that's the mystery. That God could uniquely, the uncreated God can uniquely communicate himself to a person within time and space in a particular way. Just like he could touch a leper and heal a blind man. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? One person at one place at one time uniquely conveying his love to, to you or I. So that's, that's my understanding of the, of the mystery, mm-hmm. you know, which seems, I mean, if you tried to approach it log- logically, it seems that's why a lot of really intelligent people became deists. Mm-hmm. Okay, I believe that there's some source of all of life, and we're going to call it God, but what does that God have to do with this creation? You know, there's no way that God could be subject or limited by creation by being in it somehow. But the Christian, the Christian teaching is that as a result of God's love, he can accept what the seeming limitation 
of becoming what we are so that we could become what he is. It's like something like, how can you contain the uncontainable? Yeah. Into, yeah. You know, to share us with our own genetic DNA, be contained, not contained, but share in to be close to the human Ask you. Yeah, and you're doing something that's beyond my level of intelligence. <laughs> Talking about a genome. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I sound smart sometimes, but I'm not. <laughs> I was, was going to go the, like, the opposite yeah, direction to Scooby Doo. <laughs> <laughs> the magic the mystery machine. It's a mystery. <laughs> technically, we're all, this bench is made out of the same material as we are. So technically, this bench is related to us. Everything, everything is, is, can be... Well, and then if you get into that, you're getting into anthropology. You know, I mean, what it means to be a human and not something other than a human, you know. But, but you are, I mean, like... Um, like, I'll, I'll give you a funny little story. So, Lazarus was risen from the dead. And he became a bishop. Lazarus, you know, the brother of Mary and Martha. Um, he was raised from the dead and he became bishop. And uh, he was said, after having that experience of death, four days in the, four days dead. Fall, you know, really, corruption. Um, and bringing, brought forth by Christ. That he never, he never smiled for the rest of his life. And, uh, but it said one time when he saw a man stealing some pots, he smirked and he went, mm, look, clay, stealing clay. <laughs> Going, kind of relating to what you said. Anyway, we could talk all day, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to keep going a little bit because we have just a little bit of time left. And I don't, I don't wanna go past our scheduled time, just out of respect for your, your day. But, um, okay. So the point is, is this point that uh, this is something accomplished by God that man participates in um, is, is emphasized by the fact that the baptismal formula is in the third person. The priest does not say, I baptize thee, or the servant of God. He doesn't say, yeah, I baptize, but the servant of God is baptized, like you were saying. There was recently a thing where a Roman Catholic priest had used the wrong formula. So and he baptize. said, we baptize, we baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the church said, oh no, all of those baptisms are invalid because you use the wrong formula. It's like the wrong ingredients. It's not we who are baptizing, it's Christ. And they have this the Roman Catholic Church can get very like scientific, kind of legalistic about certain things, um, you know, juridical. And, uh, and so you say, when the priest is performing a sacrament, he's doing it, they say, en persona Christi, in the person or as if he is the person of Christ doing it. And, uh, and so he would have to say, I baptize you as if me in the person of Christ am baptizing you, not we. 
So we say the servant of God is baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So it's not an act that we or even the priest performs, but it is an act of God. It's God who died in the flesh and rose again for our salvation. And God who unites us to himself through our sacramental participation in his sufferings. So inasmuch as our fallen nature dies with Christ in baptism, so are we freed from the ancestral sin inherited from our forefather Adam. And in the Orthodox Church, the original sin is frequently referred to as the ancestral sin. Our Holy Fathers did not understand this to mean that we inherit the guilt for Adam's transgression. This is a difference between Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism especially. But rather we inherit the inclination to sin to the point that it's much easier for us to sin than not. Our life is dominated by the passions. We see sin as as an illness uh, rather than a state of being. So we're not born, we're not conceived guilty. Uh, But we are born into corruption as those who were, were created for incorruption, but we're born into a world that is subject to corruption. So our life is dominated by what we call the passions. Most of all, however, the ancestral sin refers to man's enslavement to corruption and death. We hear in Romans 5, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for, for that all have sinned. So our enslavement to the passions are but proof of our ultimate bondage to the power of death. And St. Paul lamented, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Romans 7. We've seen that when Christ died, his most pure soul descended into the depths of Hades to destroy the power of death forever. In baptism, we too descend with Christ so that we might share in his victory. We hear again Romans 6, 5 through 7. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. So in baptism, then our fallen nature is put to death and our sins, both ancestral and actual, the ones that we're culpable for, are forgiven. As we recite in the creed, I confess one baptism for the remission of sins. We die with Christ and our sins are forgiven so that we might share in his life. From the water, therefore, we emerge reborn as true children of our Heavenly Father. St. Carol of Jerusalem says, At the selfsame moment, Ye died and were, bo- and were born, and the water of salvation was at, your, at once your grave and your mother. Once a leader of the Jews named Nicodemus, or we say in the West, Americans, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, but sorry. Uh, having studied a little Greek here in the past, it's hard to mispronounce certain names. Words in, um, in Greek are accented, and the word, the name uh, Nicodemus has his accent on the uh, second syllable. But it throws people off sometimes. 
like an Athanasius. Athanasius. Yeah, that's Athanasius. Yeah, I know. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not trying to be a purist, but uh, just kind of out of habit with some names. But our Lord told him, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was understandably confused by this strange saying. You know, he said, what, can a man return to his mother's womb? You know, and then Christ explained, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Baptism is our birth of water and the Spirit. All of those who have been rightly baptized in the name of the Holy Trinity have been born again, you say. And again, we must stress that this new birth is not our doing, but it is the work of God. It's God alone who bestows the gift of life upon His children, who emerge purified from the baptismal waters. Of course, having been granted new life in Christ, it's up to us to live in accordance with it. Nevertheless, it's God who first bestows the gift. And the new birth is the result of neither our efforts, like you, where it's not accomplished by us, ultimately. We just, we're participants in it. We choose to participate in the saving work of God. Nor of any personal decision for Christ, but it's the result of the grace of God imparted to us in the mystery of holy baptism. So read in John Gospel of John 1, 12-13. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. After baptism, the newly illumined servant of God is clothed in a white robe. You see some people in white robes around here who were recently baptized. The robe of righteousness. Our nakedness is covered by the righteousness of God as we prepare to lead our new life in communion with the All-Holy Trinity. Grant unto me the robe of light, O most merciful Christ our God, who clotheth thyself with light as with a garment. That's a reference to one of the hymns we do in the, um, after the baptism. Do you guys remember it? Grant unto me the robe of light, for you clothe yourself with light. O most merciful Christ our God. Yeah. And so the newly illumined, we call them, who are baptized into the church and chrismated into the church, um, continue wearing their baptismal garment at the divine liturgy for 40 days. And they go, they're first in line for Holy Communion. So you notice people kind of shifting around, moving, hey, get up here, you know. Um, for the 40 days after their reception into the church. So great, therefore, is the mystery of our salvation. And greater the benefits bestowed upon us in holy baptism. We die to a world of sin and death and rise to walk in the immortal life of God himself, having emerged from the waters reborn and having been clothed with the garment of salvation. We're ready to receive within us the Holy Spirit to become living temples of God. So, okay, we have three minutes left. We won't talk about baptism of tears and confession today, but I do have a little note here. I have some things to cover with you guys. Um, hmm. Can I do it in two and a half minutes? I don't know. 
So I wrote myself a note, discuss the general format of the services of initiation. Discuss how children are received into the community. I can do that quickly. Uh, when babies are born, we follow a traditional pattern of prayer. Uh, on the very day that a baby is born, we say prayers for, for that child. So the priest will be called upon and he'll go visit the family. And so this shows how, like, again, the church is just integrated into our life. I've seen a pregnant woman, so, you, you know, you don't have to worry. It's not embarrassing. As I always tell people, I, I know, like, the worst things you've ever done. You don't have to worry about me seeing you in a hospital gown, okay? Um, but, uh, but I, and, it's, and it's very, like, uh, respectful, too. Like, when I go visit someone, I'll go check in on them, say some prayers, and then let them have their time. But first day prayers, and then we go back on the eighth day to do naming prayers. If we can't, for some reason, like if it's a complicated hospital situation and I can't get there on the first day, then I can combine the first and eighth day prayers. Um, but officially the naming prayers take place on the eighth day. And then on the 40th day, just like um, in the life of Christ and in the ancient practice, there's a presentation there's a, that takes place where the mother and the child come to church and we have what's called the churching of the mother and the child. This is what, I guess, growing up, the closest thing we might call it like a dedication, baby dedication or something like that. You know, the mother and the child come back after a time of like bonding and recovery. Um, and... We have prayers, and that's when the priest brings the baby in, and I get to, everyone's jealous because I get to hold the baby. I try, when I go on the first day, I try to get a, this is the one time I can, I'll do a selfie. A selfie holding that little baby. I'll go, <laughs> I got to hold the baby. Um, it's really special, you know, being a, the father of our community in that way. But the, the priest actually brings the baby in, and says some prayers, brings the baby around the holy altar, and then hands the baby back to the mother. You know, it's kind of like the, the pattern of life that we follow. We take what God has given us. We offer it to him. He blesses it and gives, gives it back to us in return. We do that even with our children. So the priest takes the baby and offers so beautiful and then hands the baby back to the mother. And so the mother is trusting me to take her and the church to take the baby for a few minutes. And then also in turn, the church, like on behalf of Christ, is entrusting this baby to the mother's care. It's incredible. It's really beautiful. And, uh, and then around that time, too, we, we baptize infants, too, which is the difference between... Um, some different traditions, which we don't have time to, to really go into, but it's always been a matter of course in the Orthodox, in the Christian tradition, to baptize babies because it's, it's the point of initiation into the church. And unlike in the Roman Catholic Church, babies are automatically communed. So we don't wait until they do their catechism and their, uh, what do you call it, initiation, confirmation. We don't wait until a confirmation uh, 
we, they become a communicant of the holy mysteries right, right away. So anyway, and one last thing I'll tell you is as you're exploring becoming Orthodox or just checking things out, go to our Becoming an Orthodox Christian page on our website. And I have another list of things, like things that you should be thinking about and considering as you're preparing for uh, becoming an Orthodox Christian, a member of our community, and things that you and I can talk about. And it's more, again, it's a list of different things you should be thinking about and that we will talk about, and books that are recommended for reading, because there's, there, there's a lot of good material out there, and there's some certain things that everyone probably should read, you know, as they're exploring the faith. So go to our website, or if you're having a hard time with it, I can print out the page for you. If you don't, you're not tech savvy or don't want to do it that way, I can help you with that. But go to the Becoming an Orthodox Christian page and look at that, and then let that be kind of a starting point for more of the dialogue that we're having. That's what I'm planning on kind of going over with you when we get together, some of those things, and just seeing, like, where you're at and how that applies to you, for example. So while we're doing class sessions together, I'm also trying to get to know everyone individually. So this is important. We spend time together one-on-one -on -one so that a little more personalized catechesis can take place. You can ask questions that, about things you're struggling with. This is where some of the discipleship, you know, that we do in the church takes place when we get together one-on-one. -on -one. And then I can kind of cater some of your spiritual practices, your prayer life and readings to, you know, your unique questions and experience, things like that. So, okay, let's stand up and end with a prayer. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. O Lord, I know not what to ask of thee. Thou alone knowest what my true needs are. Thou lovest me more than I myself know how to love. Help me to see my real needs which are concealed from me. I dare not ask for either a cross or a consolation. I can only wait on thee. My heart is open to thee. Visit and help me for thy great mercy's sake. Strike me and heal me. Cast me down and raise me up. I worship in silence thy holy will and thine inscrutable ways. I offer myself as a sacrifice for thee. I put all my trust in thee. I have no other desire than to fulfill thy will. Teach me how to pray. Pray thou thyself within me. Amen. The prayers of our holy fathers, Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you so much for being here today. Go in peace.